Radio Mano Papachango. Chris and fellow tangential listeners, this is Taylor coming to you from a cafe in Venice where I am currently passing through on my way back home to Colorado. For the past two months I've been working on a conservation research expedition in Croatia, the last few days of which were punctuated by a short but intense love affair with a beautiful and charming young Croatian woman. So here I am caught in a strange place between two worlds, between the excitement of foreign travel and the familiarity of home, between the sweet blissful feeling of fleeting love and the sorrow of having left it behind all too soon. So here's to all you wanderers and lovers out there, and here's to you, Mare, Fala, Moya Yubavi. Until we meet again, ciao. Hello, Christopher. This is Charlton from the borderlands of New Mexico. This afternoon I'm hiking into our desert peaks to lay to rest an individual who I do not know. I'm in the gerontology world and his remains have been sitting on a colleague's shelf for about a decade. We figured it was time to return him from whence he came, back to nature. Chris, thank you for your podcast. I love your take on life. I love your take on death. It's helping me through a difficult season of life. So keep doing what you're doing, and best of luck to you. Have I mentioned how much I love you people? God damn it. I really do. I love the sincerity. I love your open-heartedness. I love your quirkiness, your fucking weirdness, your intelligence, uh, your heart. It's fucking beautiful to to sort of be at the center of all these spinning planets, um, and I'm so honored by that. Thank you for sharing your love, for sharing your death, for sharing your pain, your happiness, your vulnerability. It um, it's beautiful. Thank you for that. Uh, this episode is with the man who exemplifies every one of those qualities. His name's Jody Armour. He teaches law at uh, USC, I believe. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I should definitely have uh, queued up here. Yes, uh, University of Southern California, exactly. He specializes in race relations. Um, obviously, he's extremely smart. Uh, I met him at his house in this incredible room overlooking uh, Los Angeles, just an insanely beautiful space. Um, and in the corner is uh, an old typewriter, uh, and he'll tell you about that typewriter in our conversation. Um, but it, uh, it was the typewriter that his father used sitting in a prison cell. I'll leave it at that and let him tell the rest of the story. Um, but Jody is a man who 
you know, sometimes you meet people and it's just so clear that they were born to be where they are and to be doing what they're doing. And uh, Jody's entire life sort of, there's a trajectory to it that becomes clear in our conversation. Uh, and in that sense, he's, you could say he's very lucky or you could say he's, um, there's a sense of destiny. I don't know. Um, but it's not light. It's not easy. Um, there's a lot of pain and, uh, challenge in the story, but man, what a story it is. Anyway, I, I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, I hope you'll listen to this. I think if you're hearing my voice now, you will. We we have we talk about uh, some difficult things. You know, I've talked on this podcast about my resistance to being policed in terms of language, my resistance to any particular group uh, of people who consider themselves to be um, persecuted, telling me I can't use, you know, this word or that word. And, um, this is sensitive stuff. This is, and I don't, I don't play with those things to be cute or to offend or, um, you know, to get a rise out of people. I think it's very important to resist uh, any kind of group think it's resist it's diff, it's important to resist any seeding of intellectual or linguistic freedom because once you give it up it's next to impossible to get it back and uh you know so th- these are issues we talk about and and it's really worth talking about an example i i got into a little hot water on twitter recently because uh i saw that um a publishing house huge publishing house uh i I don't know how you print is it haché or hatchet or i don't know it's a french company um that was publishing woody allen's memoir um a month before publication so that means books are printed you know a month before publication shit's already especially for something as big as this everything's in place um you know media has been set up all sorts of stuff's going on so he you know wrote a memoir and they were going to publish it and i'm sure they you know it's probably seven figure advance lots of money changed hands lots of documents have been signed the book's been written it's been edited and now a month before publication, they uh, they kept it very secret and word got out that, okay, we're about to publish Woody Allen's memoir, which was not the way to handle this, right? Keeping your own employees in the dark, but I guess they wanted it to be a big splash surprise. I don't know what. Anyway, some employees staged a walkout. Uh, they were very unhappy about the fact that they were going to be, that their this company where they worked was going to be publishing Woody Allen. Um, because of the sexual abuse controversies and, you know, the allegations that had been made by his ex-wife and uh, and their daughter, I guess, his stepdaughter, I, I guess. Um, and I said something on Twitter about how he was being um, 
vilified and you know, I understand he's not in prison, he's not being hanged, he's not being stoned to death in the town square, but uh you know, he's paying a price here. And I I'm not an expert on this controversy. I ha- honestly haven't, you know, read lots about it or, you know, whatever. I'm sort of I've seen things in the media. But what I do know is that he's been investigated twice. There was an allegation that he sexually abused his stepdaughter when she was like out of seven or something like that, very, very young, um, that he took her up to the attic and touched her inappropriately or something, but there are no witnesses. And two um, state agencies, including, I believe it was like the Yale Sexual Abuse Center, you know, like they specialize in the sexual abuse of children, investigated this. Uh, and both agencies found him not guilty. And so I don't know, where are we if you're found not guilty by two agencies, there are no witnesses, and yet for the rest of your life, you are untouchable. You are unpublishable. You, no one, people are ashamed to, to be seen with you, to work with you, et cetera. So I said something about it on Twitter and then every, you know, I get all these people saying, you know, there's a bad look for you, dude. You're defending the sexual predator. You're like, don't we adhere to the principle that if someone isn't demonstrably, you know, innocent until proven guilty, right? That's the phrase, especially something so complex. And, and what they'll say is, uh, Oh, yeah, you know, but he, you know, we know he molested his other stepdaughter because he married her. Well, okay, well, she was an adult. They've been married for 25 years or something. She obviously doesn't consider it to be problematic. What the fuck do we know? So this, my point is that if we surrender a principle because a particular case may be a bad fit for that principle, then we've surrendered something much, much bigger than we realize. I don't give a shit about Woody Allen. I don't particularly like his movies. I don't particularly like his humor. I I don't give a shit. What I give a shit about is saying, okay, well, he's been investigated, he's been found not guilty twice, there were no witnesses, but still, fuck that guy. What? How how do you have an opinion about that? How do you claim to know? So, you know, it's, it's the rule of law, it's the Constitution, it's uh you know the the you have the right to say something even if i disagree with you like we have to defend principles because if we don't adhere to these principles if we don't all agree on the core principles then we have nothing then it's all just case by case it's all who has the most power, their opinion matters the most because we, there are no rules to the game anymore. 
And when there are no rules, no agreed upon rules, then the game's over. Speaking of games being over, stock market is continuing its biggest decline since the crash of 2008. Trump administration has no idea what to do. They pushed the Fed into making a half a point reduction in interest rates, which are already almost at zero, which means they're, they've pretty much emptied the chamber as far as being able to do anything uh, to prop up the economy in that sense. OPEC uh, and Russia are no longer cooperating. The price of oil is dropping. Uh, a ma major American oil firms are deeply in debt that needs to be repaid in the next two to four years. So if the price of oil continues its decline or doesn't rebound, they're in big trouble. We're going to see things like Chevron and Exxon looking at bankruptcy. Wow, that is major. Uh, airlines are cutting flights. Conferences are being canceled. Classes are being canceled. Shit is hitting the fan. And the principles that have held this society together for decades are being shredded by the Trump administration. The idea that, I mean, let's be honest, it's not all the Trump administration. It's been happening for a while. And, and I, to be clear, I consider Trump a symptom, not a cause. I've said that before. We've watched in the last 20, 25, 30 years, the central institutions of American democracy being corrupted. And not only democracy, not only political, economic, uh, cultural, you know, the Catholic Church being exposed as, uh, you know, basically a child molestation racket, um, you know, shaming everyone for masturbating or being homosexuals or having sex outside of wedlock or whatever other fucking moralistic claptrap they've been laying on society for centuries while they're in the back room doing all that and, and much more. Um, the hypocrisy of some of the central uh, organization. I mean, the Boy Scouts just went bankrupt a couple of weeks ago because of sex abuse scandals and they can't possibly pay all the fines and uh, settlements that are being uh, that they're being uh, forced to pay so they go bankrupt no more boy scouts interesting uh i don't know what do you expect when like junior boy scouts are are literally called wee blows wee blows really you're a wee blow uh i don't understand um what's my point my point is that we live in a time of extreme decadence. There's a quotation I often think of by Bertrand Russell talking about historical ages. And he, he outlines four types of historical epochs. He says there have been four sorts of ages in, worlds, in the world's history. 
There have been ages where everybody thought they knew everything. Ages where nobody thought they knew anything. Ages when clever people thought they knew much and stupid people thought they knew little. And ages when stupid people thought they knew much and clever people thought they knew little. Okay, so we've got everybody knows everything, nobody knows anything. Smart people think they know a lot and stupid people think they don't. And stupid people think they know a lot and clever people are confused. The first, where everyone knows everything, is an age of stability. The second, where nobody knows anything, is an age of slow decay. The third, where smart people are like, we got this, and I don't, I don't like the term smart and stupid, but you know, I guess it's where experts are doing a good job and non-experts respect what they're doing. Um, that's a, an age of progress. And then the age when non-experts think they know everything and experts are defensive and confused and on their back, back foot, this is an age of disaster. And that's where we are. We are in an age of disaster because the central institutions have been exposed as corrupted. You know, you think about the early 60s, the Kennedy administration, which is ancient history for most of us. I was born at that point, so I certainly wasn't aware of what was going on. But there was this sense in the Kennedy administration, they called it Camelot, right? It was the best and the brightest. It was all these Harvard, smart, good-looking, charismatic people, and they were, you know, don't worry, we got this, and they were going to go to the moon, and they were going to cure cancer, and everything was, the economy was humming along, America was the place to be, everything was great and getting better, that sort of age of progress, it was palpable, like everything's getting better and better and better. And then Vietnam. Vietnam was such a turning point in American history because the previous war, World War II, man, that's a righteous war. We fucking saved the world. It's, you know, we did the right thing. Everyone loves us. Then we go home and we're working and we're saving money and everything's great. And then Vietnam, Vietnam was a fucking disaster. And by the way, I don't mean to like just ignore the Korean war, but that was a weird kind of non-war war. But Vietnam was one of these things where there was just this forward momentum and, you know, by 10 years later, the entire culture was like, all these people we thought were so smart, they're fucking corrupt. And then you have, you, that's where you have this counterculture movement, literally counterculture against the culture that you're born into. And since then, that was the turning point. Since then, then you had Reagan and the corruption and you you actually have people running for office saying they hate government, right? That's like, that, that's like, why would you go to a doctor who hates medicine, right? Why would you go to a doctor who's like anti-health? But that's what Reagan was. Reagan, Reagan literally said, the government is not the answer to the problem. The government is the problem, right? That, 
that guy got elected to two terms on that platform, that the government is the problem. Not that we could do this better, not that we can improve government, not that we can tighten things up and eliminate some bureaucracy. No, it's that government itself is the problem. Government should get the fuck out of the way and let business run things because business is about efficiency. Business does things better. Privatize prisons. Privatize everything. Cut taxes. Where's that gotten us? That got us where we are right now, where we, where the CDC is so underfunded, understaffed, the the top administrative positions are filled by idiots that, you know, some friend of Trump's or whatever. They're hiring college students to run agencies in the government. It's what is going on? Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm ranting. I just wanted to read you that quote from Bertrand Russell. Uh, yeah, shit's melting down. So what do we do? How do we handle this? Uh, my only answer, and by the way, I talked about some of this stuff on uh, last month's Video Roma, which is available for supporters of the podcast on my website. As little as two bucks a month, you get access to a monthly Video Roma, and uh, you also have free downloads of all the eBooks that we put together from the podcast. So you've got tangentially reading the first one that's got Joe Rogan and Duncan and uh, I can't remember everybody, uh, Gabor Mate and Casilda and Rick Doblin, all these people. Um, and you can also buy that as a physical book uh, from my mom uh, or from Amazon, depending if you want the full color version or uh, black and white version. Um, but there's also uh, the Talking Sex book that just came out. It's an ebook only, and the Talking Drugs ebook um, also. Both available on Amazon for five bucks, or you get them free on my website if you are a supporter of the podcast. And honestly, look, you could sign up, pay two bucks, download everything, and then cancel it. Uh, I wish you wouldn't, but there's no, I trust you. Pay what you can, what you will. Um, anyway, the point is that I talked about some of the stuff on the video Roma and cause the question was like, how do you deal with these global issues? How do you deal with the fact that the great barrier reef is probably going to bleach out this year? I just read a few days ago, the great barrier reef. This is the largest living thing on the planet is dying. Wow. Um, and my answer if we can even call it an answer, is that you can't, there is no way. We are caught up. We're in a river. There's, we're in a river rushing downstream. You're not going to swim upstream. You're not going to change the course of the river. There's no way. Forget it. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy trying to swim against these currents. These are larger than any of us. Fucking Mike Bloomberg has no effect. He spends half a billion dollars, half a billion dollars, and he gets nowhere. So if a, you know, the ninth richest man in the world can't have a significant impact, what the fuck are you and I going to do? Uh, my point being, I think that's a waste of effort trying to you know, I mean, obviously vote, uh, you know, if you want to send five bucks to your candidate and help them or whatever, I'm not talking about, I'm not saying don't do that. What I'm saying is 
that I think the smartest place to focus our energy is around us, is to create and nurture loving, cooperative relationships and communities, not in Africa, here, right where you are, wherever you're sitting. If you're in Africa, then in Africa, but wherever you are and the people around you that that's all we have that's all we've ever had i'm talking since the dawn of homo sapiens that's what we have if you've read my books you know that that's the central point of those books that what we have what we're good at is taking care of each other that's what's brought us this far that's what's going to get us through whatever's coming and unfortunately, we live in a society that teaches us to distrust each other, to hoard resources rather than share them, to, you know, look at preppers, right? Like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a bunker. I'm going to get guns. I'm going to get like lots of canned goods. Okay. Now, I think, you know, it's smart to be prepared. It's smart to recognize that the, the sort of fragility of the world that we're living in. These supply lines can be cut at a moment's notice. They're, they're sort of fraying right now, actually, right? Uh, goods aren't being imported from China as much. Uh, lots, they're having trouble filling, stocking shelves in certain things, right? That, hey, that's the world we live in. That can happen anytime. So it's smart to, to prepare, but... Preparing by stocking your bunker with canned goods and guns is a very, how can I say, it? it's a reflection of this particular mindset. And that doesn't work. Because what are you going to do when you run out of canned goods? Or what are you going to do when you run out of bullets? Or what are you going to do when you're so fucking lonely and sad that you use one of those bullets to shoot your own fucking head off? Because what you need more than canned goods is love, is friends, is companionship. There's an article in the Sunday New York Times yesterday. Uh, it's a front page of the Sunday Review, I think. I don't remember. But it's really worth checking out if you get New York Times online. It's about a woman in Washington State who teaches um, survival skills in the woods, how to tan hides and build a fire with, you know, sticks and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I read it. I see these articles and I think, oh, Jesus, here we go. Like some journalist from the city is going to, you know, spend a day or two in the woods and complain about how everything smells bad and blah, blah, blah. I've like, seen it a million times. I can't wait to get back to my iPhone. Actually, though, this was very well written and and touching. And what she, I think it was written by a woman, what she ends up uh, learning is that these people who go to live in the woods, these people who, who say, okay, you know, fuck it, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't, the system isn't working for me. So I'm going to simplify radically. I'm going to go live in the woods. I'm going to try to grow my own food. I'm going to, you know, spend as little money as possible. You know, those people who most of us look at and say, oh, they're running away from the world, right? They're, they're trying to get away from it all. What they're actually doing is 
seeking community. And the, the journalist made this point like, wow, I was in the woods. And she, she tells this very touching anecdote about how they were out walking or something and she got separated from the group and the sun was going down and she was lost and, and she was terrified and was so happy when those people came back to her, when, the, when somebody found her or she heard them call or something. And she realized that what the people out there are doing is not running away from community. What they're doing is trying to find community. They're building community because there is no place as lonely as modern America. There's no place as lonely as an American city. Because the city's designed to separate us, to keep us apart. We don't even run into each other walking down the street because most cities you don't walk down the street. You get in your fucking car to go somewhere, isolated in your car, moving from place to place. I remember there's a movie called Crash years ago. And the, the basic idea of the movie is that people in L.A. are so separated and lonely that they actually have auto accidents in order to have contact with each other. So anyway, that's what I've been thinking, that as things continue to deteriorate, which I think they will uh, increasingly rapidly, the way to respond to this is with love and community and trust and surround yourself with people who are going to take care of you and who you're going to take care of which is a return to primordial human values. And that's why it feels so comfortable. That's why it fits so well. Because that's the shape. It's like a shoe that is designed for a foot, right? That's the world that we come out of. And so that's the world that's going to fit best. All right, enough ranting. I'm going to play you out with a tune. I, I think a, a dude who listens to the podcast, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, dude, but he wrote to me and he said, hey, you know, I'm kind of a schlub, but my nephew is a really good musician. You should check this out. And he sent me a link to his nephew um, playing this music on YouTube. And I'm going to pull this up here. Yeah, his name is Istvan Varga Roman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, the song is called Nothing to My Name. And you should just go check it out on YouTube. I'm going to play the MP3. Uh, but it's one of these things. I love I love this. He's alone. In a, you know, it looks like he just strung some blankets up on the walls in his bedroom or something. And he's got some instruments. And he's got a looping uh, device. And he plays all these instruments and sings. And it's so fucking cool. It's so amazing what you can do with next to nothing. Um, you know, in terms of, I mean, lots of technology, but the point is he's he's got a bass, he's got a guitar, he's got a keyboard uh, and, uh, and a voice, you know, and voice. It's fucking great. Anyway, the song is called Nothing to My Name. His name is Istvan Varga Roman. 
and uh, I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Thanks for listening, y'all. Sorry for the long rant. Miss you. <laughs> Those of you I've met, I miss. Those of you I haven't met, I, I sort of uh, miss you anticipatorially. Remember, the best place for extra food is in your friend's stomach. Catch you soon.
All right, I am in an incredible space. What what neighborhood is this? This is View Park. View Park, and I understand why, because there is an amazing view over Los Angeles to the oh, those the Santa Monica Mountains over there. Like I feel like you could see Pasadena from here on a clear day. On a clear day, there's the Hollywood sign straight ahead. There's Griffith Park Observatory. Yeah. Yep. It's amazing. I'm here with Jody Armour who I met at the Motherfucker Awards. Thank you for doing that again. That was fantastic. It was a pleasure. It was an amazing experience, and it showed the power of performing art, especially comedy, to move the needle when it comes to discussions of racial and social justice, social yeah. justice in particular, but all kinds of justice. Things that make people uncomfortable, it helps if you can break the tension a little bit, and humor is the best way to do it, right? There's nothing better, you know. In fact, um, my work, uh, my latest book is titled Nigga Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice in the Law. And the reason I have that title for my book, even though it's been very controversial and I've had a hard time getting publishers to publish it with that title, what inspired that title was a comedy routine. Chris Rock's Chris Bring Rock. the Pain, uh-huh. the one that launched his comedic career. Right. And in in that routine, he walks back and forth in front of a predominantly black audience and says something to this effect. I'm going to give you a rough paraphrase, something like it's like a civil war going on in black America. And there's Mm, two sides. That's right. There's black people and there's niggas and niggas have got to go. I love black people, but I hate niggas. Boy, I wish they'd let me join the Ku Klux Klan. (laughs) Shit, I do a drive-by from here to Brooklyn. And his core, and he keeps on going like that for about 35, 40 minutes. And his core definition of a nigga is, if you really listen to the routine carefully, a black person who's done a crime, essentially. A morally condemnable criminal, black Mm -hmm. criminal. But by that definition, Chris, I realized that of the up to 90% of young black males, I came up with that statistic for a law review article of mine recently, and the editor said, Professor Armour, that just sounds hyperbolic. Do you have a pinpoint site for that? And we got the pinpoint site. Up to 90% of the young black males in some of these inner city neighborhoods are going to wind up in jail, on probation, or on parole at some point in their lives. So by his definition, up to 90% of our own black youth are niggas, right? And in a lot of comedy, there is a politics. There's a political invitation, Mm. right? There's an us-them invitation. The them are the butt of the jokes. And the us are the ones who are laughing at their expenses. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever caught yourself, and I think many of us have, laughing at a kind of sexist or racist joke and kind of feeling uneasy as you catch yourself laughing, the reason you feel uneasy is you realize that in a joke, like any text, is an invitation to become a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. And you accept that invitation through your laughter. And a lot of times we can realize when we're laughing at a kind of racist or sexist joke that we're becoming a kind of sexist or racist person at that moment. And we don't feel comfortable about that. That's why we feel that twang of guilt. Right. And so what uh, what my scholarship has been about has been taking on that distinction between lovable black people and morally condemnable niggas and pointing out that. 
there isn't that distinction. That moral distinction cannot be maintained, not only within the black community, but outside the black community. You know, when it comes to white criminals, I don't think they should be otherized, demonized, monsterized, or niggerized either. I think, you know, my scholarship is based on the idea that, you know, hurt people hurt people. Human frailty is part of the human condition. We all are sinners. We all can sometimes do horrible things, and we shouldn't be defined by the worst moments of our lives forever. Do you think that Chris Rock distinction is replicating the sort of field uh, I'm, uh, can I use the word nigger in our conversation? Yeah, you know, it's a, cool? it's, a tr- it's a very tricky one. I, I like yeah. that. I like us to reflect on that for a moment, right. Chris. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I say in my book, look, I, you have to be able to use the N-word when referring to the title of this book. Right. Because I, it's the title of the book. Yeah. You have to be able to go into Barnes and right. Noble and ask for this book. But I also recognize that there's a lot of pain in the word for sure. many black people. It's been historically it has roots in a kind of painful experience. It's been used to demonize and to otherize. And so it's 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 it can cut and it can wound. Um, but used with care and used with compassion it can also suture the places where blood flows, I believe. Now, I'm most comfortable with seeing black folk who are the historical targets of the word use the word in a self-referential, with a sense of self-referential irony, right? right. And only if you're a member of that group, like I don't use the B word, B-I-T-C-H, or any, any word that's derogatory toward women, even though there's a magazine out there called B-I-T-C-H that's a feminist magazine that's put out by women. But I think because they're historical targets of the word, they can, appro- they can use it. They can invert it. What if you're with a woman who says, hey, you know what? I don't mind at all. You call me bitch. I want to be your bitch. Yes, yes. So what about that? Yes. The, the B word is, 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 has been more flexible historically even mm-hmm. than the N word because it has penetrated pop culture and the cultural you know, context a lot more. But she may be able to license you to use the word with her right. when y'all are sitting in the sure. car together kicking it. But that doesn't mean that other women out there, if you say it in a public space, might not find it a lot more abrasive. What about the notion, and this, you know, I, I take your point, um, certainly about how certain groups have uh, affiliation or have been impacted by certain language. And so there's a special relationship there. But what about the notion that because a certain group claims to have been victimized and that that language was part of their victimization, that they now have the right to police what vocabulary is available to everyone? See, yeah. I find yeah. I find the N word, the B word, the C word. I find these constructions to be infantilizing. Yes, I feel I can't say I can't say the B word without feeling ridiculous. Yes, right. Yes, um, and I understand that if I say bitch in public, yes, depending on my intention, depending on yes. the intonation, depending on the context, yes. or maybe not even depending on that. Maybe a lot of people just say you have no right to ever say that word, yes. I feel like it's up to me whether or not I accept that judgment. Yes. I feel like one of our basic freedoms is the right to say what we 
want to say, yeah. and then other people have the right to react to that how they yes. wish to. I think that's spot on. You know, I'm a big First Amendment free speech, free expression advocate. I'm almost a free speech absolutist. Mm. Almost, right? Almost. And, almost. <laughs> and touching on the, yeah, the yeah, a, almost. Yeah. Um, and that's why I get so upset when police use, for example, prosecutors use rap lyrics against artists to convict them in criminal trials. Right. They're doing that now. And that, you know, they told Ice Cube, I interviewed him for one of my plays once, and he said the police told him if he uttered the words and when he uttered the words, fuck the police on the stage, they were going to come out and arrest him. Mm. And when he uttered those words on the stage, they came out and arrested him. And listen to the lyrics. Tell me this isn't political speech. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown and not the other color. So police think they have the authority to kill a minority. That's politically oppositional discourse. That's sure. political speech. He was arrested for that, right? So we, who the state is going to come in and tell you you can't be critical using profanity and that you can't find the profound in the profane and lodge this kind of critique against the state? Well, so that's why I'm weary of any kind of efforts to inhibit free speech for that, number one. So you right. got, we're on the same exact page there for sure. Um, but I think there may be some words, and there are very few, I would say very few words like this. You know, I, I can only think of a, of a small handful. You know, if I were in Germany, for example, and I wanted to use some Jewish slurs against people, given the history of Germany with respect to anti-Semitism and the ovens that I saw when I walked through Auschwitz and Poland, I could understand some people saying, you can use a lot of other words, but you can try to stay shy of that particular one, even in the name of artistic uh, expression, if you're not yourself from that group, mm -hmm. if you're not yourself, you know, using it, trying to invert it and use its meaning with irony to, to, to whatever artistic purposes you're trying to put it. So... I guess I definitely hear what you're saying, um, but I, I guess I also wonder why that particular word has to be used in order for someone to feel like they are really not being infantilized, you know. Um, well, isn't it one reason might be that it's so omnipresent in the culture? Yes. How are you yes. singing along with a rap song yes. and you come to the, the word <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm white, so I need to skip that word. Yes. Yes. I, I notice they do it now on the radio. They yes. silence it, yes. which is now. They, I mean, as an artist, I would feel like, what are you doing? That yes. that rhymes or that, you know, yes. the beat is there. Like, yes, it's a weird thing. You, you're familiar with this recent controversy over American Dirt. Yes. Catch me up again. So I did hear something It's a book about this. written by a woman who I think was born in Spain. She's half Puerto Rican. She yeah. lives in the U.S. And it's a book about the immigrant experience. Oh, yes. A m young mother yes. and kid That's coming right. up through Mexico. The gangs are threatening them. They, yes. And Oprah chose it as one of her selected yes. books of the month or whatever she does. And But it became very controversial because of, of this very yes. issue that we're talking about. The sort of Latino community or some people from that community decided that this person had no right to represent that experience. Yes. And so it, it brings up this question of if you're not from the group you're writing about, do you have the right to tell their story? Yes. Good. So nice. There two related issues. I first deal with the word 
and then go into that kind of are you appropriating our experience in history kind of question that American Dirt raises. But as to the the N-word itself, it is, as you say, Chris, omnipresent in the culture because black artists have so penetrated pop culture with rap especially with the brand called Gangster Rap that I first heard when I was in Berkeley walking from the law school down Bancroft Way and somebody had their speakers out the window and I'd never heard a sound like this and it was NWA's Fuck the Police coming mm. straight from the underground. Song, really? It was that song. And it was, it, it was jaw-dropping. It was, it was raw. It was direct. It was uncomfortable. It was disruptive, but that was the point. It was meant to disrupt. It was meant to, in the same way that Black Lives Matter, you know, their methodology was first disruption. Let's cut through our collective complacency, right, about racial injustice by shutting it down, disruption, and then let's compel some uncomfortable conversations. And so I've used the N-word in my own scholarship in that way. I've even spit it at American Association Law School annual conferences. I've stood up there and given them 16 bars of gangster rap with N-word laden lyrics as part of that, right, to disrupt and then to compel the uncomfortable conversation. Um, So when someone like Kendrick Lamar has someone come up on the stage and sing along with the rap who's white and then chastises them for using the n-word saying don't use that you know sing the rest of the song but don't you know i can see how a lot of people say come on now you can't have it both ways you can't have your cake and eat it too you can't first you know put it out there and then try to police its usage and that mm. sort of thing right well and 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 about as close as i can come to any kind of response to that is this I think that a lot of black artists have been saying for a lot of years that, you know, we can come up with something that's culturally rich. And rather than us getting credit for it or benefiting from it commercially, a lot of times, you know, like rock and roll will be presented to America with a white face, then it becomes commercially acceptable and viable and profitable. And we aren't getting, you know, even the credit for it, because a lot of the time people are walking around talking about how intellectually inferior black people are. Right. Right. You have books, best-selling books like The Bell Curve by Murray and Hernstein that say blacks are intellectually inferior genetically. And yet we're coming up with these cultural innovations that are run, taking over the world. I'm over in Poland and what the two American art forms I'm hearing most often are jazz and rap. Right. These two, you know, kind of this fruit of these these black people are supposed to be intellectually inferior, but they have clearly their genius to shine you through. So I think some some black folks are saying, you know, there's been a lot of that kind of appropriation, which we're not giving credit for our own uh, cultural genius. And then people take it and run with it. Um, This is a cultural property that you can't so easily appropriate. Right. You can with the blues, you can with R and blues, with rock, with a lot of other things, even rap. But, you know, can't the idea. And I think uh, uh, some white folks find it almost offensive. The idea that black folk would say this is a cultural property because it is valuable. We're talking about the N word. The N word. The N word itself is a valuable cultural property. Right. Mm. That when when Kanye West is able to say, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke. 
you know what follows there, nigga, that earns him more spins. That's a mm. culturally valuable expression. Can you imagine how much Bill Maher would have liked to drop the N-word on, you know, um, The Daily Show the, the, as punchlines, you know, how, how you know, to, to spice up, you know, the routine. Because mm, it's, it's a, got that it's, explosive. It's a culturally valuable yeah. pop- property. It's unparaphrasable. Right. It's transgressive. It's unsayable. There's no other word like it. It's very interesting. I've never thought of it that way as a, as a like a property. Like yes. you should have to pay royalties or something if you use it. Yeah, or, or at least you can re- understand why somebody would say, someone from the black community would say, you've been able to appropriate all our other cultural right. properties without compensation a lot of times and then denigrate us to boot right. and say we aren't, we aren't smart enough to do anything right. while you're doing that. And here's just one that you're not going to, it's not so easy to do that with. Right. And we will, to some extent, you can call it police it or whatever or, or whatever but why why is it that this one cultural property is so important to be able to appropriate it to you know this this re- reminds me of a, that great uh, Dave Chappelle uh, skit written with Neil Brennan who I've had on the yes. podcast yes uh, about the blind yes. black white supremacist yes remember that I love it it's one of the most brilliant things ever because yep. he's racist. He doesn't know he's black, so he hates black people because he was raised <laughs> yes. among white people, right? Yes. And that whole thing. And there's that scene where the they're in uh, the truck. They're on their way to a, a, a meeting or something, and these three white kids, suburban white kids, pull up, and they're playing rap, yes. and he starts yelling at them because he thinks they're black and this whole thing. And they're like, <laughs> did he just call us? Like, wow, that's cool. So it makes me think, that maybe the reason that people want this, you know, people who aren't, don't have a right to it necessarily want to use the word is because I think there are so many things about whatever black culture, if yes. that's a concept, yes. Yes. that are attractive, yes. to, you know? Yes. And so, you know, baggy pants and, the, you know, they're, they're so wearing whatever. I mean, the clothing, the way you move, the way yes. you dance, the music you listen to, yeah. so much of white culture is emulating the yeah. genius, as yeah. you described it, that's shining through. Yes. So they want that too, yes. you know, because they want to talk the way yes. black people talk. The style, the swag, yeah. you know, the swagger. I feel that 100%. But, you know, what I think some of the black folks who are critical of some of that appropriation would say is you want the style, you want the swagger without paying the price. And without even understanding, you know, that baggy pants come from so many black men being in prison. Yes. Right. Whether you took your belt, you know, not understanding the history and. The yes. pain that's involved. And yes, and even if you did understand the history, which a lot of times is not understood, the idea that you, you get the benefits of blackness without any of the burdens. You don't have to still walk around in the black skin. Right. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, you can, you can stop whatever that black affectation is that you are, whether it's the hat, the way it's tilted, or the way you're walking, or the way you're talking. You can code switch, and the police officer is not going to see you as a black guy right. you know he's going to see he's going to treat you as a, a white person I'm, I'm reminded of the um a couple years ago at the height of the black lives matter movement when you had that procession of hashtags walter scott you know um um uh, um um, and I, there, there, there's such a long list of them. I, I have to go back to Trayvon Martin and then come up through all of the, you know, Stephon Clark and 
and um, 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 it was endless. Uh, there, there's almost uh, there's almost an endless uh, procession of them. I'm trying to remember. Uh, you know, I, I, at one time, it's sometimes so painful to think about that you try to repress it. But Sandra Bland, you know. Um, um, the, the, the guy who was shot uh, in, in Minnesota with the cops standing over him and the little uh, girl in the back seat oh God, um, yeah. it, it, while he was bleeding out on Facebook Live. And I think I've repressed some of these memories. But anyway, rough, roughly around that time, I remember uh, seeing a picture of a black guy standing in a mall with a white shirt on. And across the front of it said, Dear police officer, I am a white woman. Right? And that is kind of uh, the flip side of what you were sure. talking about. The, 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 the sad, tra- tragic reality is that shirt isn't going to change his perception by police. Right. Right. He can't just code switch it away, um, right. who, how he's going to be perceived. Whereas, you know, a lot of white folk can actually appropriate a lot of black culture and the swag and the style without having to, in any pa- point in time, face or pay the price of blackness what i call the black tax the black tax is the is the kind of social tax that blacks play pay as a result of social stereotypes so for example chris your listeners can't see how i'm looking right now but i have a big afro that a lot of law professors don't don, don't rock in any kind of way. And I didn't for many years. I had one when I was in high school because, you know, it took me from 6'5 to 6'8, you know, having all that extra hair on my head. I played for Lower Marion High School, Kobe's old high school, you know, shout out to the dearly departed, um, uh, Kobe Bryant. And I was not thinking about follicle fashion or growing a fro at the time. <laughs> follicle right? Fashion. I wasn't. Never heard that. I expression. wasn't. I just yeah. was on sabbatical about four years ago, and I was sitting down writing this book, Nigga Theory, that I just mentioned to you. And, uh, you know, when I write, I go into a no air, water, or food zone. Oh, yeah. You know, my kids used to run around saying, Dad's riding cemetery silence, mm-hmm. cemetery silence, because that's how I kind of have to write. So, the last thing I was thinking about doing was making any trips to the barbershop here, Architects, right around the corner. Nine months go by. I go back into the school to start teaching criminal law, still kind of half writing my, my book, and my mind was kind of there. And I overhear, and I didn't have a big fro, I had a little facial hair, a semi, you know, uh, uh, fro going. And I overhear some students saying it's ironic that Professor Armour teaches criminal law while he looks like a criminal. Hmm. Then I go downtown about three weeks after that to talk to some downtown attorneys about commercial transactions, which is kind of one of my wheelhouses back in the day. And by the time I get back to school, I hear that they have called back to the school and reported to some of my colleagues that Professor Armour's here is impertinent and unprofessional, right? And I wasn't even a big fro at that time. Now, here we were talking about free speech. Here's, you want to know what a great lubricant for free speech is? This thing called tenure. 
Mm. Right. Fortunately, I had that thing called tenure. Good. Right. Which means you can't get fired just for expressing yourself in ways that somebody finds uncomfortable. So I was able to say, grow, baby, grow. You know, let me get some magic grow, whatever I can. To, you know, I look like not, you don't see it now because I don't have my beard. I look like Dumbledore at one point. I had a long <laughs> beard here and really the, the hair was really going. This but, is a tenure fro. Yeah, my tenure fro. That's it. That's it, Chris. But here's, here's where the price skin comes in. You know, that all sounds kind of okay. You could say, yeah, kind of interesting or whatever. Um, but then about two months after that, I go down to downtown L.A., a place called J.W. Marriott. I connect with my friend from high school, Lino Garcia, who I hadn't seen for 20 years. We were in a program called A Better Chance, which takes kids out of inner city neighborhoods and puts them in schools where they have a better chance to go to college. Mm. So we roomed together as part of A Better Chance. And after I talked to him, you know, we opened up some champagne, toasted to innocence, toasted to time. That program is what got you? That's what got me into college and got me to where I am. No kidding. Yes, I needed that because my dad had been sent away for 22 to 55 possession sale of marijuana. Tell you about that a little more in a minute if you want to know. But um, after I talked to Lino, I'm standing in the lobby of J.W. Marriott, and I'm approached by three guards. And the two white guards stand back and send the black one over to me. And the black one comes up to me and says, sir, are you here to see someone? And I said, yes, I am, but why aren't you asking anyone else in this lobby? And Chris, I looked, I was dressed like I am now. That is slacks, hard shoes, button-up shirt. I did not have a tie on, but I did have a sports jacket on. Um, I said, he said, sir, we've been having um, a problem with transients. Now, the implication was clear. But I wanted to hear him say it from his own lips, you right. know. So I said, you're saying I look like a transient, meaning homeless person. Yeah. He said, sir, don't take it personally. And he went back and joined the other two. At that point, I called. Because the nice thing about working for 20 years at the law school, so many of your students are now out working at law firms and the partners at law firms. So I called one of my students who was working in law, downtown law firm, Latham & Watkins. And I said, if he comes back, I know he's not going to come back, but if he does, I just want you to be on the line. And I started tweeting about it, you know, mm. so you can if you go back far enough in my Twitter feed, you'll see me tweeting about this experience and as it's happening. But I knew he wasn't going to come back. He came back. This time he was more close. All three of them were bunched together and they came right up on me. And he said, sir, what is the name of the person you came here to visit, the Mm. guest you came here to visit? Now, as a crim law prof and as a tort prof, I can tell you what he was saying. I can characterize that transaction for you legally. He was saying if I didn't give them the name of a person that they could find in their database of guests, I'd assume the ejectable status of a trespasser. And they were about to lay hands on me and throw me out of that lobby. So this is what I mean about the black tax. I had one of two choices at that moment that black Americans routinely and we're in Black History Month now as we're talking, Chris. Mm. So this is a very apt conversation to to have right now. I had one of two choices that black folk all over America have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times a day. And here were my two choices. One, I give him Lino's name. And I swallow that indignity. I validate his stereotypes about me and who I am on the basis of my appearance. I take on that microaggression, which is really more than just a microaggression. That underplays how 
painful that can sometimes feel right. to the recipient. It's more like a spirit murder. Right. You know, like constant he, surveillance. Constant surveillance and constantly having to swallow the indignities. And also the fact that the black man was, uh, yes. I imagine, forced to do this. So there's yes. a power play going on between him and the two white dudes as yes. well. Uh, uh, although some of them don't even feel forced to do it. Some of them, like Chris Rock, I love black people, I hate niggas. You know, and they, they, they embrace that politics of respectability that says there are good Negroes and bad Negroes, and he looks like one of the bad ones, and I don't have any problem labeling him as one but of the how, bad ones. But how is Chris Rock's thing different from me saying... You know, they're they're decent white people and they're racist motherfuckers. Right, right. Is I mean, is yes. it that different? Yes. I would say I like that. Nice, Chris. I think that it would it's problematic to dehumanize anybody. Even criminals. Even 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 more people who do things that are morally condemnable. So if you said, you know, um, if you said there are decent white people and there are worthless crackers i would say that's the same you know you should not be for, for referring to other human beings white or any other color as crackers right right that dehumanizes it otherizes and it it is not some a way we need to be thinking and, about and treating one another. So, and so I'll get back to that get, a little more. But just lobby, to, yeah. my one or two choices. I yeah. have one or two choices. Yeah. Either I swallow that indignity and give him Lino's name. That's choice number one. Or choice number two, and there's only other choice. I tell him to go fuck himself, right? And if I go, go, opt for that, I'm going to wind up in the back of a police car, right? And I'm going down to the station house and there the newscasters coming on saying, you know, USC law professor. He's throwing some extra irony. USC criminal law professor, ABC legal analyst. Big picture of your afro. Yeah, big picture of my afro arrested for criminal assault details at 6 and 11. Right. So those are your two choices. Either way, pick your poison. Either way, you're going to suffer indignity. Mm. Right. And that's what I mean about the black tax. Right. And that's what that's the experience you have walking around in the black skin. Right. I wasn't getting treated like that. And it wasn't just the black skin there. It was the fro too. It was the follicle fashion, as we said. Right. It was the fact that you had hair that was too nappy you know, to be on a respectable person. And so I'm going to draw some negative inferences about you on the basis of your hairstyle, right? And so that's what I mean when I say, you know, there is a price that you pay when you walk around in a black skin or you don a black identity that is uh, something that whites do not pay when they, you know, say, appropriate the black swagger, Right. black man swagger or you know the off. language conventions that he or she uses yeah. you know so you're enjoying the benefits without carrying any of the burdens yeah yeah no i i agree it's you know the, all this stuff is really i mean it's fascinating on its own terms it's also uh, especially poignant for me my wife's african ah. um, um but she's see the funny thing is she's racially part african part indian so some people would look at her and say, oh, she's Brazilian. Yeah. Some people say she's Puerto Rican. Wherever yes. we've traveled together, people think she's from there because yes. she's brown. Yes. Right. Um, but then when she's in the U.S. and black people assume she's one of them, 
she's like, but I'm not. It's yeah. weird. So she feels like it's almost racist that black people are assuming that there's a relationship with her because of the color of her skin, where she's like, I was raised in Europe. In here's, here's, here's why it's not racist. I can hear why she thinks that. But when you really deeply understand America's history of race and how it's defined race and racism, you wouldn't find it as objectionable. Uh, Amadou Diallo, it was a famous case in New York of an African student who was uh, in, a, in the vestibule of his uh, of his own um, building, and four white police officers thought he was in reaching for his wallet because they, they were playing close police, came out and said, hands up. He reached for his wallet. They shot him dead, right? Um, they treated him just like Walter Scott. They treated him just like any other black American. You know, you, um, I've, I've had uh, Nigerian friends come to America, you know, and they kind of don't feel like American blacks. They don't have the same history of slavery, you know, and some even feel superior to American blacks for that reason until the police started treat, start treating them just the same as American blacks. And then they realize there's a, there's a way in which they are their their fates are intertwined right right although that's allowing the police to determine group identity right which, which like, you don't have to which is right you don't have to but you can here here's here's how we do what, race. Is, what is racism yeah here, here, let's here's what let, let's define race first and then racism you're absolutely <laughs> right yeah. here's how we do race in america and I, when I was over in Poland talking about, you know, cultural uh, things that were going on in America, I said, y'all have important, a lot of cultural, American cultural artifacts. One that you should be wary about or at least careful about importing is race, what, how we do race in America. Here's how we do race in America. White man, white woman, white baby. Black man, black woman, black baby. White man, black woman, black baby. Mm. Black man, white woman, black baby. Right. That's how we do it. Now, take that black baby from that white man and black woman, that black baby that comes out, and have that black baby have a baby with a white person. What comes out? Another black baby. Mm. Right? And have that black, black baby have a baby with a white person. You know what comes out? Another black baby. Um, race in America has never been about biology. No matter what the child looks like? No matter what the child looks like. That's how we do race in America. That's why you had quadroons and octoroons, the so-called one-drop rule in America. If you have one drop of black blood, it makes you black. You know why? Because what made you black and makes you black in America, at least historically what made you black, it was never about biology. It wasn't a biological fact. It was a political fact. What made you black was you could be put on an auction block and sold as chattel. You were a chattel slave. That's what made you black. And so mm. any kids that Thomas Jefferson had, right, right were, bla were chattel slaves. They were black, huh. right? We've always, anything, uh, you know, Obama, who is half white, half black, right, quote unquote, biracial, he could be put on the auction block right alongside Kunta Kente. Right. The auction block defined blackness in America. Mm. Right? What about a free black man in the north, though? Right. right. His kids weren't. That's considered. what that's what 12 years of slave is about. He, you know, you're free <laughs> one time. You, we take your butt down you're here. In you're back to being black. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and subject to huh. the auction block, even if you're not on the auction block, if you're subject to the auction block, that's what makes you black. So we, it's always been in America. Race has always been not a biological fact but a political act. 
That's always been race in America. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to accept that definition. You know, in some countries, they dif- distinguish between biracial and black and white, and then they have all kinds of other gradations. You can go that way if you, if you want, but m- black Americans decided not to go that way as a group. Historically, when you look at the Harlem Renaissance, for example, a lot of those people could pass walking down the street. They could almost pass for white because they had so many admixtures in them. Mm -hmm. You take someone like Frederick Douglass, you know, who any black history studies course is going to start with Frederick Douglass, going to be one of the people at the cornerstone of of that course, at least one of them. He was biracial. Right. Clearly, um, uh, W.B. Du Bois is going to be another uh, core person in the black canon of writers. Right. His mom was Jewish and his dad was black. He was biracial, too. Mm -hmm. But he was he was one who said, I'll be as black as black can. The blacker, the metal, the mightier, the man, because blackness wasn't about biology. So what do we do with Rachel Dolezal then? Yeah. Well, here, Rachel Dolezal, what made her problematic is she would never have been on the auction block. She never would have passed that test. So she never would. She was never exposed to that risk. She never shared that fate with anybody who is black. Right. She would have been both her parents were white. She would have been she could have been now she could have been a great ally, you know, like John Brown. You know, John Brown was a great white ally. There have been many great white allies to black folk through the years. All the ones on the Underground Railroad who put their livelihoods on the line, right? Who were prosecuted. Yes, freedom riders for for harboring runaway slaves, right? Um, There have been a lot of white allies who haven't said, I have to be black to Mm. support black. Just like I can support women's rights without saying, I'm a woman. Mm. I want to be, I identify as a woman. I want you to call me a woman so that I can really embrace the cause of women's you liberation. you know her story? Rachel Dolezal's story? Not completely. A Maybe. friend, I, I was, I brought her up as sort of a joke right on. Uh, in a hanging around with some friends and and one of the friends had seen a documentary about her or maybe it was a podcast and she explained to me that her story's actually kind of nuanced and Mm -hmm. made me feel ashamed for joking about her she uh i guess her parents were like super christian Mm. uh, fundamentalist abusive and they had a foster home they they adopted a lot of black kids and they treated the black kids horribly and she was their only biological daughter and over time, she came to relate to those, to her siblings, like as an ally against the parents. And then something happened later, like she, I, and so she started acting black because those were the people she loved in that yeah. family. And she, you know, took care of them and tried to defend them against the parents. And then she had like a black boyfriend or, mm-hmm. or married a black husband. I forget the thing, but she was like totally integrated into black society mm-hmm. and felt very isolated from white society because of all the abuse she'd had. Yes. And so she just came to associate and identify. It wasn't as it was explained to me anyway, it wasn't that she was trying to appropriate anything. It was just that that's where she was safe. And those were the people she loved and who loved her. I feel all that. And I'm I'm cool with all that. But she has to, at the end of the day, recognize that she has a white privilege that that somebody like Sandra Bland, somebody like Walter Scott, Somebody like, you know, uh, any of these folks who are walking down the street being profiled because of their black appearance 
or because of their black ancestry, you know, she has to embrace the fact that she and acknowledge the fact that she does enjoy white privilege. Right. When, when, when they wrote the book, The Bell Curve, Murray and Herrnstein, and said that blacks are genetically inferior, she didn't have to think that they were talking about her. Right. Genetically, she could say, oh, I'm one of the ones they're saying is superior. Right. Right. At the end of the day. So it's one thing to, uh, to sympathetically identify with the people who are socially marginalized and to say, I want to support them in their struggle and in their fight. And it's another thing to say, I am them and to in that way deny your privilege. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting stuff. I, I, talking about race, you know, it, it's so uh, it's so frustrating how language reduces the conversation and language prevents us from uh, uh, from nuance. Yes. You know what I mean? Like yes. blacks and whites. Yes. What does that mean? Are Jews white? Yes. Right. Like it yes. depends who you ask. Right. Yes. Are Puerto Ricans white or black? Yes. You know, it's all OK. My African wife is black, but she's not black the way you're black. Yes. Obama's raised by white people. Yes. He kind of looks black. You remember that Spike Lee movie, yes. uh, Jungle Fever? Yes. It's all about gradations, the yes. shades, and yes. you know, high yellow and this and that, and, yes. and racism within the black community. Yes. So there are people who were were now identifying as black because they have a black ancestor in the last yes. few generations who look. I have. I, I got a twenty three and me thing. I have twelve percent West African. Yes. I'm as white as you can possibly be, right? <laughs> I'm almost transparent. I'm so white. <laughs> but so it, it's all, you know, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I, I feel so frustrated by the language that yes. keeps pushing us back into these yes. categories. It's complicated. And we have to be ready to embrace the complexity and the nuance and not try to oversimplify it. And that's what, that's what gets us into trouble. So we can recognize, for example, that within the black community, there is colorism. That you can be black and yet light skinned and enjoy light skin privilege. Right. That dark you can skinned people dress like a white person and not have the police react to you. Right. And that yeah. would be the lightest. That, is, right. that Those are the ones who can pass. But I'm saying even ones who can't, can't pass necessarily as white, but are light in complexion. Like if you look at a lot of music videos, especially rap videos, black music videos, you'll see that very often the woman who is is portrayed as beautiful is not a dark skinned woman. Sure. She's a light skinned woman with, you know, wavy hair or straight hair and aquiline features. And, you know, so even within the black community, there's been a lot of colorism, you know, that is, you know, darker skinned people being looked down upon by lighter skinned blacks within the black community, even though they both could have stood on the same auction block. Right. Yeah. But within the within the group, there are those gradations that can start to arise. And there are even some studies. Um, Jennifer Eberhard up at Stanford University has done some studies on death penalty of uh, people who uh, people who are deemed death worthy. And they she's found that when subjects are determining whether or not a killer is death worthy, not only are they more likely to deem him death worthy if he's black than if he's white. But the darker he is, the more death worthy he's deemed. Now, is this you, you what do you call this? Uh, colorative bias? Uh, yes, cognitive bias. Yes, right. right. That's is that yes. your phrase? Yes, yeah. it, it, un, unconscious, unconscious bias in the in the cognitive unconscious. Right. Now they call it implicit 
bias. Right. But it, it's just that's another fancy word for, you know, bias that occurs in the cognitive right. unconscious. And is the is are black jurors as susceptible to this? Yes. As here's here's the here's what the studies show. It's really remarkable because we're all swimming in the same cultural milieu. We all learn the same stereotypes, and they can unconsciously affect us. So. Um, one, one set of studies, for example, that when I was first writing about this that I used to point to, um, to understand what a stereotype is, you got to understand that a stereotype is just a well-learned set of associations mm. that can run automatically without our conscious awareness. So like the three-year-old little white girl in um, a New York Times article that when she saw a black infant pointed to the black infant and said to her mom, look, mom, a baby made. Right. That three year old little girl isn't a racist. She's not a bigot. She's simply reporting on an association that's been forged in her memory between women from a certain social group and an occupation. She often sees them, routinely sees them in. So she she sees baby made. She may reach the age of judgment, 18, and come to renounce that as an appropriate way to think about black women, but that doesn't mean that association hasn't been forged in her memory and is capable of running automatically without her conscious awareness. I'll give you an example of how that works, um, Chris. Remember when you first learned to ride, drive a car? Think anybody, when you, when you first get behind the wheel of a car, every one of your maneuvers and movements has to be directed by your controlled mental processes. It takes intention, attention, and effort to push the gas, coordinate it with the brakes, and turning of the wheel. It takes lots of repetition and effort, right? But with enough repetition, you can do it all automatically without any effort at all, any conscious awareness. In fact, when I teach my sons, taught my sons, I hate to admit this, how to drive a stick, you know. So now you have to coordinate the foot with the gas and the brakes and the clutch and the stick and the steering wheel. And when you first get behind the wheel, all of that takes intention, attention, effort, a lot of work. But with enough repetition, you can drive down the street doing all of that while having an in-depth conversation with someone about health care reform. Right. Because it's all, it's all happening automatically without your conscious awareness. Now it's part of, it's a mental habit. It's become a mental habit. And this is what racism is? And that's what is? stereotypes are. Stereotypes, stereotypes are mental habits. Right. They can run automatically without our conscious awareness and, and, and direct our perception. Now, I distinguish that from prejudice or racism. I, I I would call prejudice or racism some, a, someone who consciously endorses a stereotype. If you say, mm, you know, okay. oh, I don't think women are equal to men. And so, you know, that's a prejudiced idea. That's you're consciously endorsing the idea. You may have learned, you know, unconsciously through associations. You don't see women in positions of high office. You don't see women in, in leadership roles. You see them stereotyped in various kinds of, you know, cult, um, um, uh, art and entertainment that you're taking in. You may have the stereotype in your mind, but you may not endorse it. You may not you may mm. not embrace it. And so the, sometimes for many of us, there is a war between our mental habits, the stereotypes we have and our 
conscious beliefs for the kind of people we want to be, for how we think we ought to respond to the world. Yeah. And so we can be, have an internal war going on inside ourselves. I think this is an area where the, the paucity of language yes. uh, really frustrates me because, like, for example, you said women aren't equal to men. Or, and I, I'm thinking about this uh, controversy that flared up a couple of weeks ago when Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders. I don't know if you were aware of all Catch this. me up. Do you know who Joe Rogan is? That, that name is familiar. Well, he's like the biggest podcaster in the world. That's he's it. millions That's of downloads every episode. He's also a friend of mine. That's it. Shout out to Joe. All right. Um, and he had Bernie Sanders on and he talked about how he thought Bernie Sanders was great. And then the Sanders campaign tweeted that because Joe's got millions of followers and Joe's Joe's this guy he's like a UFC fighter mm. he does commentary on the UFC fights he's always ringside nice. he's also a stand-up comic yeah. friend of Chris Rocks he's yes. on tour right now with Dave Chappelle yes. they they do shows together uh he's an amazing dude yes. anyway uh what happened was the LGBT community uh, or parts of it. I see again the the language. It's not the community. The community doesn't get yeah. together and have meetings. Yeah. But some of the loudest voices in that community came out and said Bernie Sanders has to renounce this endorsement because Joe Rogan has said horrible things about LGBT people. Mm. And then some New York Times, Washington Post people wrote about this, trying to discredit Bernie Sanders. Using uh, David Frum wrote about it from the in the Atlantic. Mm. Anyway, what did Joe Rogan say that was so horrible? Mm. What he said was that a transgender male to female person who was a UFC fighter was fighting in the women's division, yeah. and she was beating everyone up. Yeah. And Joe said, "I'm sorry. This person has every right to." take hormones and have operations and dress as they want and call themselves what they want. They don't have the right to fight in the women's division of the UFC because this person is not a woman. This person has a man's skeletal system, has a man's musculature. There's no way this is fair to people who are born women. Yes. Now, to me, that's not problematic. To me, that's common sense. Yeah. And so when you say, for, and what set me off on this was you said, like, uh, a sexist would be someone who says women aren't equal to men. I agree with you, except, and here we get into separate but equal or, you know, uh, problematic phrases that have been used to oppress people. But there are some things that men are better at yeah. than women and vice versa. Yeah. And of course, those stereotypes can be used to oppress Malcolm Gladwell, you know him, yep. the New Yorker? He has this amazing, he's biracial. Yes. I think his parents were Jamaican, mm-hmm. or at least his father was. And he's a runner. And he has this amazing article that, I don't know, maybe you've seen it. It's something like, why men are like blacks and women are like whites. Mm-hmm. And his point is, if you look at the 100 fastest men in the world, mm-hmm. probably 95 of them are black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... You know, and it's the same in many different um, uh, areas, you know, like there'll be vastly more whites in some areas and vastly more blacks mm-hmm. in areas that aren't dependent upon access to education mm-hmm. and money and all that. And his point is that in blacks, at least in, in athletic competition, there's the the curve is invert. It's an upside down bell curve mm-hmm. where you have the very, very best will be black but then there's you know a large sort of mediocrity mm-hmm. pool and then 
And with whites, it's the opposite. There will be a lot who are sort of good, but not the best. Mm -hmm. And that men score that way in um, engineering and mathematical stuff. Mm -hmm. There will be many, many women who are like many more women in the sort of mid range and more men who are at the very top and very bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, my point is that there are discernible differences in at least men and women. Racially, it seems in athletic stuff. I mean, I guess, is it true about the twitch muscle? and Who knows exactly what it is, but you're, there's no question that what you're saying is right. When you look at the sprinting events, they're dominated by right. blacks. And some diseases, yes. like you know, sickle cell anemia, yes. I think, is almost all blacks. Yep. And maybe Ashkenazi Jews, I'm not sure about yes. that. So there are genetic associations with race. Yes. But what is race? Yes. Uh, well, you're, you put your finger on something that is important, and that is to get clarity about what we mean by equality. When I say that yeah. men are equal to women or women are equal to men, more, more specifically, right, what do I mean by that? That only means that they, should, they deserve the same respect and dignity right. as full citizens. Right. That's all you're saying there, that they should not be subject to um, unwarranted discrimination. Now, there is a, such a thing as warranted discrimination. You know, the NBA discriminates against short people. <laughs> they, they just do, right? That's not unwarranted discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't, the NBA doesn't say, because you're short, you can't vote. Right. Because you're short, you can't get a loan right. or you're, you should be treated as morally inferior because of your height. Right. So equality doesn't mean that people are equal in every possible respect. It just means they deserve equal respect and consideration as people. And within that, you can recognize that, yes, the reason we have women's tennis versus men's tennis is that, that we want women to be able to compete against other women, men to be able to compete against other men and not necessarily men against women. You know, um, Kobe Bryant's daughter was getting ready to play in the WNBA. We were hoping, we were rooting for her. Kobe was priming her to play in the WNBA. He'd talk about people saying, hey, Kobe, too bad you didn't have a son to carry on your legacy. He'd say, I have a daughter to carry on my legacy. She's getting ready to, you know, explode in the WNBA. She would not have come into the NBA and exploded. She wouldn't have been able to simply because, you know, uh, uh, genetically, given her gender, you know, women aren't, you don't see many women who look like LeBron James you know it's it, it's just and it's not that's not take that's not and there's nothing derogatory toward women right. to recognize that reality but jo- John McEnroe got in all kinds of shit when he said Serena Williams is the best women tennis player who's ever lived and people are like why didn't you just say tennis player and he's like yeah what the fuck are you kidding me well, see, and that, uh, uh, Chris, uh, great. See, you're adding yet another layer. It gets so nuanced because, you know, what, what people can mean then is given the arena of competition that you find yourself in, are you the best in that arena, even though you might not be able to compete in the other arena, you know, uh, over here, but 
uh, given this arena, are you, have you put in so much work and is your, is your skill set so refined that you outshine all the competitors that you find in your arena? And so we can say that given that arena, you're about the best there ever was, even though you wouldn't be able to beat the person over here in this, in this arena and, here. And then you got the level in which arenas nest within other arenas, yes. right? So we might say, uh, you know, Marvin Hagler is one of the best uh, middleweight fighters that ever lived yeah. but we'll say Muhammad Ali is the best fighter who's ever lived yeah because we know Muhammad Ali could yeah. kick Marvin Hagler's ass yeah because weight it matters weight, weight matters right. when you when it's, you're fighting yeah it matters a lot right and so that that's what I think often is the where the confusion comes in Chris that we haven't clearly defined what we mean by equality mm. and so people wind up uh, so so your friend um, Mr. Rogan mm. right um, winds up being uh, criticized for making a statement that really shouldn't be that controversial, right? Yeah. He's, he's, he's stating something that actually there are a number of feminists and women who, are, who have expressed some concerns about the idea of somebody simply being able to identify as a woman even though they haven't suffered the, uh, the experience of being a woman growing up, suffered the oppression, uh, this marginalization right. Right. that Circles comes from being a woman saying, and yeah. then they turn 50 or 60 and say, oh, now I'm a woman and I should be able to be treated just like a woman mm. and get any and all of the you know any of the considerations that women get I should get all of those too and a number of feminists that I don't know that, that they, they have some concerns about that so I think you that doesn't mark you out as a as a sexist or a racist to acknowledge that there are uh, some statistical differences for example it does not make you a racist to say that blacks pose a statistically higher risk of crime, violent street crime in particular, than non-blacks. Now, some people will say, oh, if you even say that there's any rational basis for assessing the dangerousness of someone who's ambiguous and black as greater than someone who's ambiguous and white, then you must be racist. Well, you know what? I opened my first book, Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, The Hidden Cost of Being Black in America. I opened the second chapter uh, with a quote from Jesse Jackson, in which Jesse Jackson, before an all-black congregation, says, nothing more troubles me at this point in my life than to walk down the street, hear suspicious footsteps, and start thinking robbery, turn around and see a white face and feel relieved. Mm. All right. Now, Jesse Jackson isn't a bigot, isn't a racial bigot. He's simply describing what he views as a statistical reality mm. that um, is if, it statistically? It, sadly, valid? sadly, it is. If you take and it shouldn't it should sadden but not surprise us mm -hmm. that if you take a group of people. You disproportionately concentrate them in desperate circumstances unemployment, grinding poverty, that they would disproportionately turn to desperate undertakings like street crime, right? right? It, 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 it should sadden, but not surprise Not us. to mention the, the history of psychological abuse yes. and, and indignities. Yes. Uh, so there's also, you know, the, the, I was going to say earlier that it always struck me as especially uh, unjust that Obama had to fight against the stereotype stereotype of the angry black man yeah. so he had to be hyper reasonable all yeah. the time which i think ended up working against him and yeah. he got rolled by mitch mcconnell and the fucking white supremacists in the senate 
because he couldn't or, or felt maybe he just personally was an, unable or unwilling to be pissed off. Yes. You yes. know, I, I How think you not be pissed off. Yeah. And, and we can get into Obama more because I think, you know, I'm I, I, I I'm a big fan of some parts of the Obama legacy and a big critic of other parts of it. I think he embraced the politics of respectability in a way that was detrimental to the black community. Mm. But I want to drive home one, one more time this yeah. point about um, um, Mr. Rogan and how you just just because you make a statistically supportable statement mm. doesn't make you a racist or right. a sexist. Right. right. Je- Jesse Jackson was not a racist to say that race is a statistical relevant factor to assessing the dangerousness of an ambiguous person walking down the middle of a street at a dark night when you start thinking robbery, right? So like I said, it's a sad truth that you take people and you concentrate them in grinding poverty and unemployment and crumbling schools and, and other kinds of marginalization and abuse that they will disproportionately turn to crime. Now, that doesn't mean that you are saying that all black people are criminals. No, you're just saying that that statistically there's a greater likelihood, right, of criminal activity if you come from a group that is coming from these conditions of great, criminogenic conditions of great stress and poverty. Um, Now, what we do with that, that that doesn't mean that you should be able to go around and just discriminate against people. Any black person you see, assume they're a criminal. You know, because that's what they were doing with me down at J.W. Marriott, assuming that I was a homeless person. Stop and frisk was. Yeah, which was what stop and frisk was. See, there's a difference between rational and reasonable. This is what people don't always get. You know, there may be a statistically rational relationship between, say, race and risk of crime, but that doesn't mean it's reasonable to treat people differently on the basis of that rational Mm, statistical difference. So let me me give you an example. Um, Ira Glasser, who used to be head of ACLU, tells a story some years ago about a black couple who took in a movie in Times Square back in the early 70s, back when Times Square was a more mixed-use area than it is today. A little edgier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little I edgier. Remember. Yeah, you had, you know, you had adult cinema places mixed with, you know, uh, you know, just family, you know, kind of places. It was a mixed-use kind of area. Yeah. So um, he and his wife, black couple, take in a movie in Times Square. They come, he comes out at 11 p.m. and it's raining. He tells his wife, who is five months pregnant, to wait under the marquee while he gets the car. When he gets back, she's gone. He looks around. He finally discovers she's been arrested, strip searched, and booked for loitering with the intent to prostitute by a police officer. Now, here's the difference between rational and reasonable. Let's assume, perhaps counterfactually, but it wouldn't be too much of a stretch for me to imagine. Let's assume for the sake of argument that the time that officer made that arrest, a disproportionate amount of prostitution activity was happening in Times Square. A disproportionate amount of it was being carried on by unescorted women. A disproportionate amount of it was being carried on between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And a disproportionate amount of it was being carried on by women of color. Let's say that all that was true. Then he could, the officer could say, huh, I had rational grounds for assuming or inferring that she was loitering with the intent to prostitute. The reason we find what that officer did so odious and objectionable isn't because he had no rational grounds for his conclusion or inference, but because he didn't do more to reduce the risk of, of mistake, the risk of error, before he acted on that conclusion. Because we, when we 
when we look at somebody who is making a social judgment of some kind, you not only have to look at what, how accurate your judgment is, but what are the social consequences of error? If you're mistaken, if you mm. make a mistake, what are the social consequences? So uh, e e even if he said, I have rational grounds for thinking she might be a prostitute, if I'm wrong, the social consequences of error are, I'm arresting an innocent black woman and putting her through hell uh, with, 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 without it being absolutely necessary. What should he have done? He should have waited longer to gather more information to reduce the risk of error. For example, waited to see if she ran up to stop cars, if, if strangers mm. stopped by her on the street. You do more to reduce the risk of error when, when the social consequences of error are really grievous, really great. Like so execution. it isn't just, yes, yes. So it isn't just about rationality. Right. It's about reasonableness. And reasonableness is about balancing the cost of mistakes against the cost of the conclusions you're reaching and mm -hmm. waiting to, in, to be more informed to get more information so you reduce the risk of error before you act on those conclusions. It's so hard, though, it, it, in the sense that reasonableness is so subjective. Yes. Right. And, and so, you know, I think about the mandatory minimum sentencing in the 70s, right? Yes. Those tough on crime advocates thought that they were being reasonable because judges were being unreasonable. So they wanted to take that decision away from them. Yes. Even though what they were really doing was taking away the possibility of the judges looking at the context. Yes. And the, you know, the particular circumstances. That's spot on, Chris. A lot of what people thought back in those days, and this was through the 80s and 90s and even early aughts, California was at the lead and was leading the nation in three strikes, three strikes laws, for yeah. example, and mandatory minimum others. What people thought was, said at one time was, well, look, you know what? Um, when judges look at black people, they judge them more harshly than similarly situated white people. They sentence them longer. So why don't we get rid of the discretion in sentencing altogether mm -hmm. and have a one-size-fits-all mandatory minimum? That way, whether you're black, white, green, or purple, you're going to get the same mandatory minimum, right? And so they thought they were wringing bias out of the system through mandatory minimum. But what they, they that didn't wring bias out of the out of the system. When when you looked at 30 years, you step back and look at 30 years of mass incarceration, what you have is what Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. That is, you still had disproportionately black bodies winding up in the prison cells under these uh, kind of mandatory minimum approaches and sentences. So you didn't ring out bias. All you did was make the whole system harsher for everybody who got caught up. Because like I said earlier, you take a group of people like, like black folk, you disproportionately concentrate them in desperate circumstances and it should sadden but not surprise you to see them turn disproportionately turn to desperate undertakings like crime so blacks were still desperately turning to crime more but now they were getting slapped with mandatory minimums on top of that right. so it's only now that we're looking back and saying no mandatory minimums are wrong and the bias also relocated itself that's right? all so what charges are brought that's right it. the da is going to look at a nice white kid from that's berkeley it. and say okay you know that's a misdemeanor but the black kid in Oakland, same crime. I mean, I... That's it, Chris. Yeah. That, that, that is the keenest insight that I think a lot of people who are looking at the criminal justice system often miss. And that is the bias isn't eliminated by mandatory minimums. It's just, as you said, relocated. Because you can say, look, we're going to give a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 to life for everybody convicted of murder. 
And then we're going to give a mandatory minimum sentence of five to ten years for everybody convicted of manslaughter, right? And you say, ah, oh, see, we've, re we've rung bias out of the system. But when you go back and say, what determines whether somebody's convicted of murder versus manslaughter? And you find that to convict somebody of murder, you have to make a harsher moral judgment than if somebody convicted of manslaughter. Mm -hmm. The prosecution has to charge them with murder rather than manslaughter. So they've just relocated the discretion to charging blacks more disproportionately for murder, whites who commit the same crime, they're getting charged with or found guilty of manslaughter. So they, it's, it, it, you're still getting the discrepancy in sentencing, even though mandatory minimums make it look like, oh, uh, we're not being discriminatory. No, the discrimination has been pushed back to a different right. point in the system. Or even the, ch I mean, you're talking about the distinction in charges, but also another example would be the distinction between the sorts of crimes that different populations would be more likely to commit. Yes. So that, for example, the difference in cocaine versus crack. That's it. Right? That's those, it. Those sentences were much higher for crack, even though crack is just a form of cocaine. That's it. The mandatory minimums for crack were 100 times greater than similar amounts of cocaine. Uh, the 100 to 1 crack to powder cocaine disparity was arrived at by the lawmakers at, in, in, at the federal level after Lynn Bias mm. died. He was, was he was coming from Maryland. He was going to the Boston Celtics. He was going to be the heir to Larry Bird. He was going to keep the Celtics on their road to winning rings. Mm. And he went in a hotel room with some uh, teammates and used powder cocaine. That's the irony. Mm. He, he put powder cocaine on his gums and had a cardiac arrest using powder cocaine and Tip O'Neill and all of the Democrats, you know, and, and, and leadership said, we got to get out ahead of the Republicans on this and not let it look like we're the soft on crime people. And plus, that was Lynn Baez, Tip O'Neill saying that was our guy. So let's make crack a much more punished um, kind of drug than powder cocaine. And they, they just came up arbitrarily with numbers. Somebody said two to one. Somebody else said five to one. Somebody else said ten to one. Oh, well, well, let's not let them say ten to one. We'll say a hundred to one, you know. And they probably justified it by saying we're protecting the black community. That's often how they say, you know, you can't say, you can't call this as discrimination because actually this redounds to the benefit of blacks. We're looking out for the black community. Well, that's like saying... We're going to, on the 110 up here, we're going to pull over anybody who's doing, um, who's, who's, who's speeding. Anybody who's doing, the speed limit is 55. If you're doing 50, if you're doing 65 or 70, you're, you're breaking the law. We're going to lock you up, give you a ticket and lock you up. Well, what if you only are pulling over blacks who are doing 65 and 70? You could say, well, we're protecting black people more than anybody because, look, we're saying they're the, by cutting down on their speeding, we're actually saving black lives, right? And, and so, so white, you know, you can't complain that we're not pulling over whites as much as blacks for going 70 miles an hour. And that's a specious argument. You, as soon as you hear it, you say, yeah, but that still doesn't justify selectively enforcing the laws 
laws against blacks in in the name of their own good you know that, that we're just doing you a favor that that this is coercive benevolence this is therapeutic policing mm. we're just looking out for you you know it's the worst kind of patronizing you know it's the worst kind of paternalism um, and but but people often go for that argument it helps the black community more than it hurts them for us to use discriminatory enforcement in their community no it hurts them <laughs> as much as it helps them and sometimes uh, uh, more and now we're finally realizing that and when you when you while we're talking about drugs Chris one of the things that we said we might talk about when we sat down here and I like to bring it up because you're up here uh, in a room that has has my dad's typewriter sitting over there mm. and it's a drug related uh, kind of point I want to make you see that royal manual typewriter sitting yeah. over there my dad when I was eight years old was ripped from our family you've heard of family separation that doesn't just go on, on at the border that's been going on in the criminal justice system for decades and decades I lost my dad when I was eight years of age the police kicked in our door and locked him up for 22 to 55 for possession and sale of marijuana. And he was one of those, you know, he's a six foot eight inch barrel chested black man who was going to be uppity enough. He was going to be one of those uppity Negroes who was going to do all 55, you know, if anything. Uh, so he was looking at rotting in a jail cell for the rest of his life. Or the only alternative was, and this goes back to something else we were talking about, word work and words. The only alternative was for him to reach up on the bookshelves in the warden's own library and pull down some law books. And he taught himself criminal law, criminal procedure, constitutional law, and started using that manual royal typewriter right there to clack, click clack out his own writs of habeas corpus write his own legal memoranda and represented himself pro se up through the state system, got kicked over to the federal system, up through the federal system until five years later I, stood, I was standing next to him as a 14-year-old in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati and he was arguing in front of an en banc panel of judges, literally for his life. And I teach his case now in my constitution and my criminal law course, rather, it's Armour versus Salisbury, in which the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said that it is unconstitutional. And you would think that this, th this proposition would have been established before my dad's case, but his case helped establish this proposition. When you shepherdize the case, you find a stance for this proposition, that it's a denial of due process for a prosecutor to lie to a jury to get a conviction against a defendant. To lie to the jury is unconstitutional, right? To tell the jury that the only witness against the defendant was not offered any deal, was not offered any compensation when he was. Mm. To tell that lie denies the defendant due process. That's what my dad won his appeal on, vindicated himself, and found the key to his own jailhouse door in the warden's own law books. No right? Jesus. And that's why when you and I sit down here and talk about the power of words, <sighs> yeah. The power of Man. language. All he had, Chris, was words, language, word work. But, and he was able to put those sentences and paragraphs together in just the right order to turn that lock on that cell door and fling it open. And that's why I say now, what he used to always say is, you know, I made the frozen circumstances dance by playing to them their own melody. 
that, you know, he rode judo-wise with the logic of the law, with the legal lexicon itself, and was able to walk out a free man. So when we get, you know, when we talk about language and like the motherfucker awards that you um, were a co-creator of and our co-creator of uh, what I find so powerful about those awards is you know the way they use language to promote social justice mm. you know even that transgressive word itself you know motherfucker like my word nigga theory you know that it is uncomfortable it's meant to be uncomfortable it's meant to shake you out of your complacency some and it's meant to you know compel some dis some uncomfortable conversations it's disruptive yeah. and sometimes you have to be disruptive to get at you know what is really the problem and so you know language i just love language um tony morrison who just died recently you know, I think about her all the time when in her Nobel acceptance speech, she said one of the lines was, we die. That may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That mm. may be the measure of our lives. Mm. You know, and as a comedian, I know you feel because I, I tell my students that there are four occupations in America whose bread and butter is word work. I'm going to add a fifth. The four occupations I say are whose bread and butter is word work is writers, poets, lawyers and rappers mm. bread and butter right they stand or fall on the word work they do i'm going to add comedians there mm -hmm. comedians except for those who use physical humor right. but most right. most the you know richard pryor the dave sure. chappelle it's yeah. it's that the words you know and it's it's all about disruption and, yes. and getting in there and making people uncomfortable yes. as you were saying earlier the whole purpose of comedy and the best comedy is to invite you into other personas that you might be really uncomfortable with yes. and examine that. Yeah, your father, I, I, I don't wanna just go past this. That's such an amazing story, man. Yes. That's really, uh, did he know that the prosecutor had lied to the jury yes. about that? He knew. So he knew what he was going for. He knew what he was going for, he, 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 but he had to find the law to support him. And there wasn't any pre-existing case law out there. So he had to make the law. That's fucking amazing that that law didn't exist. No. There was no... Uh, What's it called? Precedent. Yes, no yeah. precedent. He had to churn the void in the hope of making butter. He had to make something out of nothing. And how did he prove that the DA had had uh, offered something to the witness? The, the witness himself fessed up. Oh, good. After the fact. Oh, good. oh, and here's another example, Chris. My dad's case gives me another example of how white allies can work with with black folk to promote racial justice this is why i'm never black and white when it comes to these issues i don't you know i i i you just that's way too simplistic when my dad was being tried criminally for the possession sale of marijuana and looking at 22 to 55 they had two witnesses against him and only two the one the prosecution cut the deal with illicitly and lied about it gave the guy a, a break compensation behind the scenes and the other guy was a white guy named Vance, who I remember Vance, he was a guitar playing, long haired white guy. I was a little kid, I used to go back and listen to Vic Vance playing the guitar. He was, had good vocals. Um, and the police, um, and this was back in the late 60s, so Vance smoked a joint or two now and then. And he was a he, friend of your father? He was a, he, he was a, he was a tenant in our apartment building. My dad owned an wow. apartment building, so he was a tenant in the apartment building. Right. right? And so he would, he would smoke a J from time to time. The police busted him smoking a J, 
and said, we're going to send you up for 18 months. You're looking at 18 months in a cage. We're going to send you up unless you testify against armor, Fred Armour. If you testify against him, you're going to, you're going to do no time. You walk, right? Um, so they had him down in the room. So they put him on the witness stand after making him that deal. They put him on the witness stand, and the prosecutor says, uh, did this defendant right here, Fred Armour, sell you marijuana on any occasions? And Vance said, I know that's what you want me to say with the jury sitting there. I know that's what you want me to say, and that's what you told me to say in the interrogation room, and you told me if I said that, that I would not have to do the 18 months that I could be charged with for possession and use of marijuana. But I'm here to tell you that he never sold me a gram of anything, and the only reason you have me here is you're trying to twist my arm to extort me to testify against an innocent man. They sent him up for 18 months. They got all 18 months on Vance. For that. And that, that that's what I'm called courage. That's right. what I call allyship. Right. Right. And, and he, he waited to the critical moment. Right. And even with that, the prosecution still got their conviction, which shows I, you how bad I it I wonder be. to what extent that statement, which, of course, is in the court transcripts yes. from the original trial. Yes. Yes was helpful to your father five years later. Yes. Right? Because it yes. establishes the precedent of yes. the, the DA trying to coerce the witness. That's an excellent point that I hadn't delved into. And I, after this book, my book is getting ready to come out in August. Uh, uh, um, Nigger Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice in the Law. Um, after this book comes out, uh, Chris, that next book I want to write is about my dad's experience, and that, I'm going to delve into that. I'm going to find it because you put your finger right on. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to excavate that. Find Vance if he's still yes. around. Yes. You know? Damn. Yes. Yeah. I had a guy in the podcast, uh, Bruce Lisker, who uh, went is in L.A. He went to prison for 27 years for killing his mother, which he didn't do. <sighs> 16 years old, he came home, found his mother's body in the kitchen. Cops came, decided he did it, framed him, and uh, he was in for 27 years. His father died and left him about, I think it was like 15 grand or something was all he had. His father never believed he did it. So Bruce Lisker did um, 27 years. His father left him this money, and he used the money to hire a private detective to go back and look at the case, right? And this detective went through the 15 grand really quickly, of course, you know, it's not cheap. Um, But he found incontrovertible evidence that the detective had lied and uh, framed him and he got him out. So, uh, You, you, you You know why that, what's so telling about that, Chris, is people, one of the first questions they'll ask me a lot of times, no matter what I'm talking about. Let me catch my breath. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, while you're catching your breath, I'll just finish this. I had Bruce on the podcast, and I was afraid. And this this brings me to your dad. Like, I, I want to ask you, like, what your dad's life was like afterwards and your relationship with him. Because I was afraid my aunt contributed to his defense fund, and they became friends. And she said to me when I started the podcast, you should talk to Bruce. He has this amazing story. He's a great guy. And I was afraid to be around him because I thought this guy's going to have so much rage that I'm afraid to be around somebody like that. Not that he was going to hurt me, just that there was, I imagine this field of injustice around him that I was afraid to be touched by, you know? 
And when I met him, he was such a sweet dude, so chill, so relaxed. And I, I said to him, like, dude, I was afraid. Yes. And I admitted all this. I said, how do you not, how are you not enraged? Yes. And he said, man, they took 27 years from me. I'm not giving them another minute. And like, that's the kind of wisdom. Yes. Like he paid for that wisdom. Yes. You know, I hear those words and I'm like, yeah, right. Good for you. That yes. makes sense. But I don't, I don't have that kind of wisdom in me experientially, yes. you know, that's powerful. Two points I'll make on that. Cause that's a powerful anecdote. Uh, um, one, the police framed him and too often that happens and we're finding it in a lot of these DNA exonerations and other things mm. where in order to cinch a conviction, law enforcement will add on. And if you really want to see where I think that did, that it had its most pernicious effect, often when I go to speak, one of the first questions members of a, of a public audience will ask me, no matter what I'm talking about, is even, even still, but 10, 15 years ago was always the case is, what do you think of the O.J. Simpson verdict? What do you think of the O.J. case, right? And I'm going to tell you what I think of it right now, right? And it ties into what you're talking about. When you take an avowedly virulent racist like Mark Furman and plunk him down in the middle of your case and make him find the bloody glove, he's the reason we use the word, the N-word, right? We had to come up with a, fra a phrase called mm. the N-word because he was using it so frequently mm. in the videotape conversations. Really? That's the first time journalists came up with, the, with that kind of um, coinage, huh. the N-word, you know, to talk about uh, how often he was referring to people as N-words. Um, um, when, when you take someone like that and plunk him down in the middle of the case, don't be surprised that he corrupts your whole case, that he taints and poisons your whole case. What I think happened in the OJ case was they framed a guilty man. That's what I think happened. Mm -hmm. I think he was plenty guilty, mm -hmm. but when you start making double sure mm -hmm. that he's going to go down by, you know, doing suspect things and with suspect characters, right? That's when you get into trouble, yeah. right? They framed a guilty man. And they, and you're like with your friend's case, with the, uh, the, the person you um, um, interviewed, on this podcast, it's the same kind of thing. Police sometimes going out of their way to cinch a case rather than letting the evidence speak for itself right. and going there. Then your second point is one that's really powerful to me, too. And it's what I've tried to do with my new book. You know, um, I'm trying to get us to think about blame and punishment differently and to move away from the way we've been thinking about blame and punishment for over 30 years now. And that has been through the lenses of retribution, retaliation, and revenge. That has been that retributive urge that a lot of us feel when we see a, somebody do something that's violent and hurtful to others. It's understandable that we want them to pay, right? So replacing retribution, retaliation, revenge with restoration, redemption, rehabilitation, right? That's a radical shift in our moral framework. It requires a new moral compass, right? And when I say that to people, sometimes they'll say, 
Well, armor, you know, that sounds, a, that sounds like you're tilting at windmills. You know, that's, got, that's a kind of revolutionary morality that you're talking about. You know, turn the other cheek, you know, restoration, redemption, rehabilitation, reconciliation, rather than retribution, retaliation, and revenge. I say, you know, to them, and I've had to say this, my, one of my early plays was based on this uh, theme, um, you know, this revolutionary morality, it is revolutionary, but I come from a Catholic background. My mom was Catholic. My grandmother was AME, um, African Methodist Episcopalian. Um, so I come from a Christian background. I'm just, so I'm going to talk to folks who are coming from that particular religious faith. Not everybody is, I understand, but to those who are, like I was talking to a friend of mine who um, was ca also Catholic, a black woman, and I'd done this play called Race, Rap, and Redemption, in which I called him a question for the play was, should we pour liquor for Tukey? Stanley Tukey Williams had just been put to death. Uh, in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger denied his plea for a stay on the grounds that he had not achieved personal redemption. That was the legal criterion that he used. Mm. Um, and so before the audience, I said, should we express ritualistic solidarity through a libation ceremony by pouring liquor for Stanley Tukey Williams? Should we sympathetically identify with this cold-blooded killer who co-founded the Crips, no question about it, and was a murderer, okay? So I don't, I'm not trying, I'm not talking about DNA exonerees, people who are innocent and unjustly convicted. No. Most of the people in prison have done the crimes they're convicted for, and most of those crimes, contrary to what Michelle Alexander says in New Jim Crow, most of those crimes are violent crimes or serious crimes. They're not just low-level nonviolent drug offenses. That's mm -hmm. one of the things I bring out in my book. She got it wrong in the New Jim Crow. Just got it wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah, but so, should we pour liquor for Tukey? I said, you know, to my friend uh, who, who, who's uh, Catholic, she said, um, no, we shouldn't. And I think he got what he deserved, the death penalty. And I said, OK, I, got, I hear you. I hear you. So what do you think would be the appropriate penal fate for somebody who went around and killed thousands of people, not just the number that Tukey killed, but thousands of men, women and children? for no other reason than the, because of the way they believed, the way they looked at the world, the way they thought. What would you think of the, uh, of, uh, the appropriate penal fate for that kind of person she would be? So obviously off with his head. I said, well, you know the person I just described was Paul. You know who Paul was before he was Paul? Saul. Mm -hmm. You know what's, who's, what Saul was on the road to Damascus to do? To kill some more innocent Christians. That's what he was on the road to Damascus to do before he had his epiphany. So if, if Saul had gotten the death penalty that we think is appropriate for somebody like Tukey, we wouldn't even have a New Testament because he's the one who went around and got John and Luke and Matthew. He's the one who gathered everybody together to write the New Testament, right? St. Paul. St. Paul, right? right? Mm. So on Sundays, we think about things through these, these re revolutionary moral lenses of redemption, restoration, rehabilitation, reconciliation. Then Monday through Saturday, we go right back to retribution, retaliation, revenge. And then Sunday, we're up there singing about re redemption again, have right? You, have you studied the penal systems in other countries? Yes. So a lot of countries yes. are where you're talking yeah, about. Exactly. It's, I mean, it's revolutionary here, but it's old news in Germany, exactly. Sweden, Norway, exactly. Denmark. Uh, it's not, I mean, because you made an interesting point there. You said, like, we want them to pay. And when you said that, I thought, yeah, we want them to pay even though 
what they pay will never rebound to the victim. That's right. Right? Like you can pay with everything you've got. It doesn't bring back a dead person. That's right. It doesn't unrape a a woman. It doesn't unabuse somebody. So paying doesn't really, who are you paying? Yes. Who benefits from that payment? Yes. Here's how that metaphor came into being, because you're right. And a lot of times victims say a restorative justice approach that has that person acknowledge the wrong and try to to do something to restore is something that I would feel more made whole by. But we're the place we got that pay metaphor is the idea that if you do something that's criminal or illegal, if you break the rules, then you are kind of cheating. We have a social contract. Con- contract. We are all limiting our freedom in return for the benefits of, of law and order, yeah. right? And so if you break the law, you're kind of enjoying the benefits, but you're not paying the same price as the rest of us by limiting your freedom. And so now you owe us a debt. You have to pay your, your, your debt to society because you broke our rules, you violated our laws, and so you got something, you cheated in a way. You got something that you shouldn't have gotten. But that presumes that everybody is benefiting equally from the way society is currently organized, right? Or that that payment benefits society. Even I yes. Can, I can see it in a civil case, right, yes. where you, you burn down somebody's building, you pay them to build a new building, yes. right? Um, or you cheat on your taxes, you pay those taxes plus penalties. Yes. And we all benefit from those taxes, supposedly. But in criminal cases, nobody's benefiting from somebody. In fact, society's worse off because that person comes out of prison angry, no education. I read somewhere like that what your father did might not be possible in a lot of prisons now. Now it is. They don't have access to legal books. They don't. They, they don't even don't. have access to, to non-legal books, or they have to pay for it. They, that's right. It's like a dollar an hour or something yes. to read a book, yes. and they're making three cents in the... It's just... Yes. The, it's the, the system of, of, of hurting someone in retribution for pain that they caused, Yes, it makes no sense. It's like, have you ever trained a dog? Yes. You know, you don't beat yes. a dog. Yes. That's not going to make him stop biting. Yes. <laughs> it's going to make him bite more, you know? Yeah. And what is the benefit from society that you got that you're now unfairly cheating when you violate the law in relation to when you grew up in a, in, in a dark ghetto with not enough food to eat day in and day out, with a crumbling school, what is the debt, what is the great benefits of society that (laughs) you owe this great debt for? Give you one quick example, um, Chris. Um, Crenshaw High School is right around the corner from here, View Park. Um, And so I've had a number of Crenshaw High School kids come up here in this room through the years to do my art and justice programs. And in 2006, I remember vividly, a young black boy, uh, 17, was here with tears in his eyes. And he said, Professor Armour, you know, you've always been telling us that if we keep our nose to the grindstone, we study, we stay out of trouble, that we could, you know, have a piece of the American. American dream and you know for people American dream is at least some level of material comfort so you're not hungry every day you have a roof over your head and the legitimate means to the American dream we have always told people is education that's why I was telling them education is legit, the, the, the legitimate means to the American dream of some kind of material comfort and prosperity he said my school Crenshaw High we just got word has lost its accreditation they lost their state 
accreditation, meaning that a diploma from Crenshaw High was worth toilet paper in the admissions process now because it was coming from an unaccredited high school. So he did everything he was supposed to do, kept his nose to the grindstone, got good grades, and now he had toilet paper for a diploma that w w made it unable for him, impossible for him to get into any decent college that he wanted to get into. So what did he do? He wound up going down here, working at Burger King down the street, making minimum wage, and you know in L.A., minimum wage, you can't own a car, you can't pay your insurance, and you're living on a part of town, you're, you're, you know, that is not a part of town, that's a good part of town. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're scrambling and scratching out uh, a, a subsistence survival kind of lifestyle. And he came up here about six months later and he said, you know, Professor Armour, I saw this woman across the street. He's a cis straight male. He said, I saw this woman across the street, this young woman, and she, wow, she was just so beautiful. I walked across the street to her. I said, you know, whatever he said to her, something like your vision of loveliness or whatever. I don't know what they say, you know, um, but he said something like that to her. Um, I'd love to take you down to Third Street Promenade for some coffee or, you know, uh, a, a, a little bite um, on my bus pass. And what response do you think she gave him when he said on my bus pass? When I bring this up to high school students or college, they all know exactly what response he got, right? Yeah. She told him to basically talk to the hand, mm -hmm. right? Um, she basically uh, ignored him. And so he came to this grim realization that his self-respect, his sense of self-esteem could not be sustained given the options in front of him, right? Through no fault of his own, he lost that connection between the legitimate means of American dream. So then about a year after that, sadly I heard he was picked up by the police for standing under a lamppost with some drugs in the palm of his hand, right? So some people would say, oh, well, why was he doing the crime? That was an act of self-destruction. But look at the social oppression that preceded that self-destruction. Yeah. Look at the seeds of social oppression in that self-destructive act, and what options did he really have? Right. Yeah. It's... Yeah, when there are no other options, what do you expect? Yeah, Maybe, when all you got is sure. bad choices, then you make a bad choice. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen The Wire. Yes, that's so good. At that is, it's one of the best. Out. One yeah. of the best. That scene where they're talking about they're playing chess. Yes, and he's explaining like yes. you know we're the pawns. Yes. Yeah, like yes. we're nothing. We we go, we die. I see you got a chessboard in the yes. corner there. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, and, yeah. and 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 you know. They're not standing under those lampposts hustling for just money. You know, people, they're not trying to get rich. They're just trying to get rich. They're hustling for self-respect right. and self-esteem. And, and to be part of a, a family, a community, yes. right? Yes. Like you talked to the Bloods and the Crips and all that. Yes. Why would people do that? Group identity is so important to human yes. beings. Yes, you know? it is. We, we need I, – I, one thing I talked about in Civilized to Death was that – the number one uh, factor in um, people's self-reported quality of life and also an objectively measured health stats is whether or not they feel embedded in a community of loving people. It's number Real. one. Yes. Yeah. It, nothing is more important to your mental and emotional well-being, you know, to mental health. And we, we're finding that even on our campus at USC, like many other campuses around the country, 
one out of five of our students are grappling with serious mental health issues. You know, in the, in the population at large, it's about one out of five, one out of six, right? And it's higher in inner city and low yes, income Yes, even areas. higher yeah. because of the additional stresses. Right. The life expectancy is much lower, all yeah. kinds of things. So, yeah. yeah. Dude, I, I could talk all day with you. You're great. <laughs> I, I really enjoy it. I feel like we just barely touched on a few a few issues. There's so many more I'd love to talk to you about. But um, before we wrap this up, because I know you've got stuff to do, can we just talk a little bit more about your dad and what happened Absolutely. when he got out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were 14 when he got out? Yes, I was 14 when he got out. And he... Um, you know, it, 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 it crushed him. It, it, was, it was a crushing, it took a crushing toll on him um, because, you know, he really did not see the, what, he did not know that there was going to be light at the end of that tunnel or, or, or if the light was there, it might have been that proverbial oncoming train, you know, locomotive rather than daylight at the end of the tunnel. And so, you know, day in, day out, there, um, he had to suffer under that kind of crushing uncertainty, and it affected the rest of the family. People don't think about the collateral consequences of that. Even today, I have a problem being in closed spaces because I think of all of those five years of family days going in to visit him and seeing him go to this little cage, six by nine, with a double bunk in it, you know, and sometimes they lock guys in there for two and three days at a time. Um, it took a terrible toll. We, I had eight brothers and sisters. It took a terrible toll on our family generally. My mother, you know, a couple years in, tried to commit suicide because the breadwinner had been taken away. We'd gone on, you know, we'd gone from a kind of middle-class existence to crumbs and roaches and rats. We were living off government cheese and handouts. And so she resorted to, you know, the only uh, relief for that pain and suffering she could think of at the time, which was suicide. She was unsuccessful initially. She ultimately was successful after a, a, a couple attempts. Um, he got out and, you know, he pulled his life somewhat back together, but he was never the same person. You know, I wish I could say there was a happy ending, but this isn't one. Of, the happy ending part is he was out breathing free, fresh air, right? And he... I'm now a living legacy of that jailhouse lawyer. And my other brother who's out here practicing law, Jeff, is also a, le a living legacy of that jailhouse lawyer. Uh, I, I like to say when it comes to the legal business, since Jeff is practicing law and I'm teaching law, that he's in the distribution end and I'm in the quality control end of the law. But what both of us are doing what we're doing because of our dad. So maybe it's kind of skipped a generation. You know, he didn't really get to enjoy a lot of the fruits of his own legal efforts, except that he did get out of that cage. And sometimes and he I, established a really important precedent. Important that's precedent affected many people. Many I'm sure. people. And 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 I think that one of the things I got out of his experience, Chris, is this: you know, there aren't always happy endings. And if the if you're looking for the meaning of life in happy endings, you're not going to be constantly disappointed in your search for meaning. But I think of that myth of Sisyphus. You, you remember that Greek myth in which the gods 
condemn Sisyphus to push this boulder up a roll for up a hill for eternity up a steep mountainside and just before he gets to the top of the hill because he's got to push it over the hill before he's going to be relieved of his curse just before he reaches the top of the hill the, he, his foot always slips they make his foot slip so the boulder rolls all the way back to the bottom of the mountain and he has to go back to the bottom and put his shoulder to the boulder and start to roll it up again and that's kind of the very definition of futility right of definition of fatalism like of hopelessness in a sense and so I think of that a lot of times when I look at this social justice landscape that we're in and it can feel Sisyphusian or Sisyphean sometimes when you look out and it seems like an exercise in futility you think you're making progress and then you here comes another setback you think you're making progress here comes two more setbacks but my what my dad conveyed to me was this even in the face of futility there's one thing that they can't take away from you, and that is your defiance, your attitude, your attitude of defiance. He was defiant to the very end of his life, and that defiance they never stamped out of him, and that was his victory, that was his triumph. Right. So even though he didn't wind up living on a hill in luxury and celebrating his victory, he had the 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 strength of his convictions and his indomitable defiance to the very end. And he had the pleasure of pushing the boulder over the top of that hill yes. at least once. Yes, at least once. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate this. Yeah, you too. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got Beer Cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day 
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground. 